0: You're listening to The Worship Review, a podcast which evaluates contemporary Christian music for the good of the church to the glory of God. This podcast is for the whole church to encourage thoughtful engagement with the words, emotions and ideas in our music. We hope you enjoy this week's episode.
1: Bonjour! Bonsoir. Yeah, that's true. It could be. Could be the evening. Whatever time it is that you're listening to this, welcome to The Worship Review. My name is Colin, I'm a history professor at a large research university in the Midwest of the United States, and I'm joined by my co-host, Tyler.
0: Hi, I'm Tyler, I'm Colin's friend and a linguist and graduate student at the same university. And what we do
1: on this podcast is evaluate critically and charitably the songs that are being sung in the church. In this case, we are looking at hymns for our second series of The Worship Review. And the way we do this is pretty straightforward. We give a summary of the song that we're reviewing. We then talk about specific lyrics and words, verses and choruses and stanzas in the song. And then we talk about its clarity and its comparison to any previous versions of the hymn. And then lastly, we award the song a rating out of five. And the criterion for that rating is a mystery. Neither Tyler nor I have disclosed what that's going to be ahead of time. Humor usually ensues. So today, Tyler, we are going to be looking at the song Before the Throne of God Above, as redone by Sovereign Grace. Now, this is a song which is frequently sung in sort of the Reformed-ish New Calvinist type churches, probably most popular in those denominations. And Was really not sung much at all until it was redone by Sovereign Grace in the 1990s, and then became a widespread song in these Reformedish churches. And was redone by the Gettys, redone also by a band that I had not heard of called Sela. And we're going to go ahead and take a look at that. Tyler, can you give us your kind of bird's eye view of what's going on and what's happening in the song?
0: Yes, definitely. And I'm very glad that we're doing this song because I liked this song going into this podcast. And in researching it, I found out I liked it even more than I did before. Not to say that that will affect how I would rate this song or something, but just to say there are more riches in this song than I even knew before. This is one of the first songs that we've reviewed that I can say was verifiably written by a woman. Yeah. Daughter of a minister in Ireland. Mm Mm-hmm. And her name was Charity Lees Bancroft. And the original title was Within the Veil with Jesus. So as an overview of the content of the song, this song is about Jesus. And he is our great high priest, and he is Yahweh himself. And it's about his perfect legal defense of a sinner in the righteous courtroom of God. Despite any adversary and particularly a certain adversary, Satan, despite the sin of the believer. Um, Jesus' defense is perfect, a perfect plea. And the sole basis for this perfect legal defense is the spotless lamb who purchased the sinner's soul Mm -hmm. by his very lifeblood and rose again.
1: Yeah, one of the things that really sticks out to me in this song when just reading the lyrics slowly and carefully is the sheer amount of declarative, objective statements about God. There is very little in the way of metaphor, simile, or illusion. It's it's just a set of clear, bold, strong statements about who Christ is, And what he's done for the believer.
0: It really is a declaration in that way, rather than a a description of expectation or hope, which we wouldn't necessarily say is wrong, but this is a very declarative song.
1: Yeah. So maybe we can go ahead and start getting into some of those declarative statements, because there are many of them. Let's start out with the words at the beginning of this song.
0: Before the throne A strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives
1: and pleads for me. It starts out with, Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. Now that's not whoever, that is who ever. It's a relative clause right. Important to distinguish. And Tyler, what's happening in this first part of the song?
0: Well, this opening line brings us to the throne of God on high. Mm-hmm. And we see from the context that this is also a courtroom and someone is pleading for the the singer of the song, the writer of the song. Um and the one Pleading, and also interestingly, the plea, the content of the plea is the great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives, so he lives
1: forever. So there's signs there of an immortal being and a being who has some authority, some religious authority, a high priest, and that their name is Love and with a capital L. We don't know that this is necessarily Jesus, but even at this point, do you think we could reasonably infer that that's who we're talking about?
0: Yeah, I think a believer familiar with the book of Hebrews would be connected to the Lord Jesus Christ immediately. But even, maybe even a believer familiar with the Old Testament would know this high priest has the chief authority over God's people and over the Church. So, I think we can say this is hinting toward Christ, but to be fair, it does not name him as
1: Jesus yet. Yeah, the song will eventually do that, but at this point, we don't necessarily know. But you're right, Hebrews, I think, is, is really the reference here, chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest. So that's exactly the same line
0: that mm-hmm.
1: was used in the song In these couple of verses, we have a nice encapsulation of who the high priest is, what it is that he's doing, uh, what it is that we can do, right? We can, with confidence, draw near to the throne, because this great high priest, who is Jesus, the Son of God, is pleading for us.
0: Mm -hmm. And in the verse, we also learn that the plea is perfect, Mm -hmm. right? And there is only one man who was ever perfect, And is ever perfect. And that's Christ Jesus. Strong and perfect plea. And we also know that he is, from this first verse, we know that he's pleading for us. Um, How can we assert that so boldly? Right? We have, like you said, a a high priest who can sympathize with our weakness. And in Romans chapter 8, verses 33 and 34, we learn that Christ is interceding for us. He is pleading on our behalf. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Hmm. So this high priest who is in the Holy of Holies before the throne of God is interceding on
1: behalf of believers. There are some ambiguities in that first line, but they, they're they actually clever ambiguities, not ambiguities that cause problems, but actually ambiguities that hint at complexity. So you've already hinted at one, which is, I have a strong and perfect plea. Now, the plea is either what is being said or is actually the person speaking. its It could be both, and in, and in fact, it is both, right? Our plea is Christ, and Christ is also pleading. So that's really nice. And then who a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. So whoever lives and, and pleads, we could also think of it as whoever lives and whoever pleads. So he lives forever and he also pleads forever, which we see in that verse that you read in Romans 8, 34, by the use of interceding. Right? This kind of ongoing process. That's the way that the verb is constructed as well. So, this song not only is faithful, or this, so this first part of the song is not only faithful to the language in Hebrews 4 and Romans 8, it is faithful to the spirit of the text and actually to the complexity in the text. And that's a sign of a really well written song that can distill big truths, complex truth, into the pithy lyrics of a song. Mm -hmm.
0: What does it mean that his name is love? Mm. Not that that is false. Our, Our Lord Jesus is love. But what does it mean for his name to be love? Yes,
1: I agree. That is a strange one because we know from Scripture that God is love. We don't have, that I can recall, any declaration in Scripture that His name is love, and that is a slight difference.
0: Mm-hmm. He has hundreds of names in the Bible. You know, the Redeemer, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord of Hosts. Yes, yeah. um, but I don't know, like you, of one where He's specifically said to be called love. Yeah. Except in you know First John, so something to note. Yeah. It's obviously not an unbiblical assertion but it is an artistic uh, adaptation of that idea.
1: Yeah. And I don't think it creates any real theological problems, but it is ever so slightly imprecise, perhaps. Again, I don't know that it—I don't think it causes problems.
0: And listeners, if we're wrong about this, if there's a place where God is said to be named to love, I would be happy to be wrong about this, because that would further undergird the truth behind this verse.
1: And please hear what we're saying. We're not saying— that the scripture doesn't say God is love. Scripture says that, but we're being very, very particular here about the idea of God's name being love because that is what's being said in the song.
0: Yes. This gets back to what Colin said in the introduction that what we're doing here is critical, critical analysis. We're not being picky and angry and sassy and persnickety like we some people use that word critical. We're just saying we need to be precise about our language and consider its implications. Yeah. That's all.
1: And so let's go ahead and be precise about our language with the next set of words. My name is graven on his hand. High- My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. So what is happening?
0: Before I did research for this particular line, I thought this was obviously referring to the crucifixion, right? And my name being perhaps metaphorically engraved in the palm of his hand where nails pierced it. Mm-hmm. And certainly that's still possible, but this is a scriptural reference. Mm. This is a reference to Isaiah 49, 15 and 16. This is the Lord speaking. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. So, Um, Yes, this is an image, I think we can reasonably deduce, this is an image of the crucifixion, but this is also the word of God being employed in this song. And my name, my individual, a name is used to refer to a specific individual. So, you can think as the listener and as the singer of this song... Uh, about the truth that Christ died not for a general humanity, but for an individual person, and for for many individual persons, but he died uh, for many individually. I guess you could say, maybe yes, and also a a a singular collective flock. I don't think either of those has to be uh, over and against the other, but some people tend to emphasize one over the other. And I thought about what it means to be written on his heart. And again, at first I thought this is a poetic embellishment, but this is not a poetic embellishment. This also is in the Word of God. If we go back to Exodus in the tabernacle period, the high priest, Aaron, before he could enter the Holy of Holies, he had to put on, he had to not only go through many ceremonial washings and everything, he had to put on a certain ceremonial garb. And he wore a magnificent, costly, Breastplate when entering the Holy of Holies, and each tribe, each of the 12 tribes of Israel, had a gemstone for representing it on his breastplate. And Exodus 28 29 says, Whenever Aaron enters the holy place, he will bear the names of the sons of Israel over his heart on the breastpiece of decision. As a continuing memorial before the Lord. So he wore, Aaron wore the tribes of Israel over his heart, on his heart, as a memorial for the people of God before the Lord, to represent them in his presence. And Matthew Henry, in expositing this passage, writes this. The high priest had the names of the tribes both on his shoulders and on his breast, intimating both the power and the love with which our Lord Jesus intercedes for those that are his. He not only bears them up upon his heart, as the expression here is, he carries them in his bosom with the most tender affection. How near should Christ's name be to our hearts, since he is pleased to lay our names so near his! And what a comfort it is in all our address to God! that the great high priest of our profession has the names of all his Israel upon his breast before the Lord for a memorial, presenting them to God as the people of his choice who were to be made accepted in the beloved. Let not any good Christians fear that God has forgotten them nor question his being mindful of them upon all occasions when they are not only engraven upon the palms of his hands, Isaiah forty nine sixteen, but engraven upon the heart of the great intercessors. So, Christ Jesus while pleading for us before God the Father, is wearing our names on his shoulders and on his heart as the high priest of Israel. That is
1: incredible. That is insane. Wow. It just gives such a full picture as to God's love for us, but also like his purposeful remembrance of us. He's praying for each of us by name and it's symbolized in this memorial on his on his heart and it's incredible too that we see that in the old testament being worn by Aaron the high priest that's incredible i wonder if jews in the early church right the, the first generation of jews that were converted to christians when they read the book of hebrews or they heard read the book of romans or whatever they would have had that image of the high priest like that that all might have i mean that we don't really we don't get that in our like this is the first time i've heard all of that and made those connections you just saying it now and it's incredible i mean that is overpowering and it takes this line which sounds like a a little
0: bit more of a cheesy embellishment yeah. and makes it a solid biblical beautiful praise of Christ, our high priest and intercessor.
1: Yeah, I'll never think of this song the same again and think of those lines. Those lines, before you mentioned that, were probably just my least favorite in the song because they were the closest thing to me that seemed a little bit cheesy. Like, oh, he's written my name on his heart. He's written my name on his hands. Um, But wow, that is weighty. I was knocked figuratively off
0: of my feet when i read this because it is such a powerful image of christ not just pleading for us with his words and his righteousness um not just robing us with his righteousness and we have a plea there but he bearing us on his heart and on his shoulders before god the father as a testament that he represents us there
1: Mm. wow it's amazing because if you think about too like we are clothed in righteousness and then jesus clothes himself in our names crazy a beautiful exchange it right? is right it is it's an image of exchange right it's an image of wow that's amazing
0: and we know from the second half of this verse while he stands in heaven no tongue can bid us thence depart no tongue can kick us out of heaven A tongue kicking us out would not be literal, right? That would be an accusation, a claim, and what we learn here is that nothing is more powerful than Christ's perfect righteousness and intercession for us that could ever, ever eject us from that place.
1: Yeah, the tongue, the, the words that the tongue says could be the words of others. They could be, as we'll see later, the words of Satan. They could also be our own words. Like, nobody's words is going to take that breastplate off of Christ or interrupt his words of intercession for us. What a powerful image. So let's go into the second set of lines here.
0: When Satan tells.
1: When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there, who made an end of all my sin. I really think this is a pretty this is a quality verse, Tyler. What do you think about it?
0: Yes, I like this verse quite a bit. We see Satan is a tempter, and he could tempt us to various sins, but the one mentioned here is um one that I think often pious people can be guilty of. Yeah. Um pious people can be guilty of all sins, but um, pious people can be prone to a kind of despair over their sins, which is itself sinful. So, this is a great reassurance for the Christian that even that sin has been atoned for.
1: Can you expand on that, Tyler? What do you mean when you say that this despair over sin can be itself sinful? That might sound a little bit strange to folks.
0: Right. Uh, scripture teaches us that a a, a holy conviction— for the Christian is proper and good, a, an acknowledgement that we have sinned foremost against God and secondly against people and against ourselves maybe as the temple of the Holy Spirit. Um, this is a healthy attitude to have, knowing that there's sin within us is not bad. This is good and Christian and right. Um, in fact, the Holy Spirit convicts of sin. But if a contrite Conviction over our sin and the ways that we've harmed God and harmed other people leads us to lose hope in Christ as our perfect righteousness, our loving redeemer, in God as our heavenly father. We are guilty of the sin of despair.
1: It's almost like we become so absorbed in our own sin that it's a kind of forgetfulness. It's we forget of the work that Christ has done, and we kind of stop trusting in it, right? So it's a it's a form of- Unbelief. Unbelief, really. And that's not to beat somebody down, right, when they're despairing and say, you're also an unbeliever too, by the way, but it is a right, that is a right diagnosis of what's happening. So when somebody is despairing, the antidote for that is pressing into the truth pressing into right belief about what Christ has accomplished. Your antidote for despair over your sin is not to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and earn your righteousness back. The antidote is to look to Christ, is to do what this song is suggesting you do, to remind yourself that God the just is satisfied, that your sinful soul is counted free. Don't doubt the work of Christ. is perfect, and it, his plea is perfect, and it doesn't fail. Mm-hmm. That's the antidote.
0: I had some other thoughts about Satan, not just tempting, but himself as, a, as an accuser, mm-hmm. right? Because um, we know from Scripture that he is. Revelation 12.10 says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah, For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. So we know that Christ is interceding on our behalf, but Satan accuses us before God day and night, and his pleas against us are not effective, right? I wondered if, um, as you said, the cure for this kind of despair is to look upward and see him there. Made an end to all my sin. So we look upward to heaven and we see our great high priest, later called the risen lamb, and he has made an end to all our sin. And I wondered possibly if making an end is a reference to Christ's words on the cross, it is finished, because Mm -hmm. in Greek that's te telestai, from teleo meaning the end of of an action. So, te being the perfective prefix, tele being the end. So, perfective means having been accomplished.
1: Complete.
0: So, a complete end, te tele, and then st uh, being the third-person singular, and then i being the passive voice, te tele stai. It is third-person singular. Perfective has been tele, brought to an end, Um, and, and passive Passive, the mediopassive passive voice is used for a lot of things, but what is relevant here is that it's being used to emphasize the action and the object of that action over the subject of that action. So, I wondered if this making an end to all my sin in this song is a reference to Christ's words, that it has been brought to an end it is accomplished
1: it it would be an amazing coincidence if that happened to line up with the greek you have to wonder based on the sophistication and the rest of the song that i wouldn't put it past the authors of of this original hymn to have made that connection
0: and it seems that she was quite theologically well versed from the from the last couple of verses
1: and also very well versed in other hymns which i will get to at the end of this podcast very good very good I like the distinction in this part of the song between the guilt that Satan uses to accuse us and the sin that has been ended. Christians do continue to struggle with guilt. We also continue to struggle with sin, but our sin is no longer— reflected in our status before God. We are 100% justified. Even as we continue to sin, we maintain justification. And feelings of guilt or shame or despair come from Satan. They come from our own sin. And the Christian is not to embrace these sorts of feelings. And we, we can rightly remind ourselves of Christ's work so that these thoughts and fears can be banished. They, there's no healthy place for them in the Christian's life. And I imagine that as we continue to be sanctified, one of the joys of that process is the gradual understanding that we do not bear guilt, that we do not bear shame, that we do not need to despair. Mm-hmm. And I imagine that, especially for those of us that live a nice long life of sanctification, that's a, a real comfort as we draw closer to death. Mm-hmm. Like, that's why I think, especially the older people who are drawing near to Christ, they're so happy about it, because they've really come to realize that they're going to go into the embrace of a Savior who does not count their sin against them. And I think the earlier we come to understand that, the more joyful our lives will be.
0: Mm-hmm. And in, in, in a way, that sinful desire to bear guilt again is robbing or is attempting to rob Christ who has borne all of our guilt and all of the shame accompanied with our sin. Just to be clear, what Colin is not saying is that Christians should no longer feel convicted of their sins. Absolutely not. There is a healthy conviction that leads to contrite repentance, confession, and turning away from sin and turning toward Christ that we should press into rather than the sinful despair described here
1: we should embrace and welcome and seek out conviction we should engage with the wider church to help us bring conviction because we're pretty poor at convicting ourselves um what we don't want to do is engage in despair and guilt and shame let's talk about this second half here Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Fascinating statement here. Probably some references here to penal substitution. What do you think, Tyler?
0: At least satisfaction, Mm -hmm. potentially also penal substitution. But I like in this first couplet, in this first pair of sentences, the contrast of the sinless Savior— with my sinful soul. yeah, And again, the contrast of his death with my liberation, I have been set free. In fact, it says I am counted free. So we are returning to courtroom language where a judge would say, I count you guilty, I find you guilty, or I count you free. And there's a causal interaction here because introduces a cause. So um, this is probably extremely obvious to English speakers, so much so that they don't even notice it. But it's important to note, this, the death of this sinless Savior is, in this sentence, the cause of my sinful soul being counted free. I think this is an echo of Second Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's not just that Christ died, it's that he bore our sin and died. And we learn in the second half of this verse that God is called the just, right? From use, meaning law, right? So God is a lawful entity. And what we're concerned with is his satisfaction. So he was unsatisfied with the way things were. And Christ's perfect obedience and death— Is a satisfaction to him, not because he's a sadist, but because he is the just and he has law and we transgress that law and someone has to pay the penalty for that transgression. So, in order to satisfy him, we needed a spotless, perfect lamb, Christ himself.
1: And that's where it seems like we get into the penal substitution idea at that point, in particular, Colossians 2. Verses 13 through 14. You who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcisions of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal use demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So God's justice, just as you said, needed satisfying. There was injustice. Uh, and so god needed his justice satisfied we needed pardon for our sin that was the injustice that committed was our injustice against god
0: one other way that he rightfully could have satisfied this desire for justice would be to punish all of us exactly right and so we worship a god who is both just and loving in that he freely gives people his people salvation while satisfying his justice It's remarkable. We also get a hint of a transaction later on in the song because it's, it's said later on that my soul is purchased by his blood. And so we can see that this satisfaction of God's justice has to be a transactional purchase.
1: Yeah. There's a neat ambiguity here in the scripture as well. Another one of these where the ambiguity is actually revealing complexity. So this, uh, he set aside, and that is the the record of debt that stood against us. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He, God nailed both our debt to the cross, but also Christ, what, Christ effectively, he became sin. So he also nailed Christ to the cross. So Christ and our debt were nailed in the same being, in the same moment, in the same instance. So there's this neat, this neat sense there in scripture. And I think this verse really does a good job of, of capturing that.
0: Mm-hmm. We, we've we seen a couple of times where we look upward in this song to Christ uh, for assurance when Satan tempts us to despair. And in this line, it is God who looks on Christ to pardon us. So uh, in in this, in this way, Christ appears before God the Father and again represents us but God is satisfied to look on him
1: and pardon us. He's a true intercessor, a true high priest in that he is in between us and the demand for justice of the Father. So we look on Christ and we see our propitiation, we see our forgiveness. And God looks at Christ and he he also, right, sees Christ's righteousness and Christ and is satisfied. So, if we were confronting God's wrath with that unmediated, we would have that bad scenario that you mentioned we would be burned to shreds, we would be utterly destroyed, and God but, would still be just exactly, and that would be the just thing to happen. But instead, Christ steps in between like the the I'm going to make a horrible reference, like it's like Cyclops and his laser beams <laughs> that come out, like God is shooting the laser beams of the law at us, and Christ pops in and he says, "Uh-uh, right." And when, when those laser beams see Christ, they bounce back off, they don't affect us, and God is satisfied. Like, God has still shot his laser beams out, he's still enacted justice, but he's enacted it upon himself. And we have been counted free.
0: Yeah, because Christ is, he's both our mediator and the medium through which this is all accomplished.
1: Yeah. Now, we have critiqued some songs in the past about the use of free. Yeah. About the idea of freedom. But this, to me doesn't work the same way because it's it's in the context of this discussion of a purchase and of of a, a debt of sin so it doesn't seem to mean like freedom like i have been set free as in freedom but that i have been merely freed from this weight of debt that i have been sort of purchased that to me seems to be like, I, I have become free of obligation to the law. That's my, my view of what the word free is doing here. And I think in context, I think you can reasonably make that assumption. So this doesn't bother me as much as some uses of free or freedom that right. we've seen elsewhere.
0: The preceding lines talk about sin. And so this freedom comes where it comes into the context where we were captive to sin, and then there's a transaction— that takes place with a sinless savior mm-hmm. and our sinful souls are then counted free. Again, not to a kind of, I use the word liberation before. Or autonomy. And it, is, it is a kind of liberation, but not to autonomy, not to independence from obligation or anything like that.
1: Um, yeah, and as we'll see in what follows, we know where we go because in the next set of words, we see that our life is hid with Christ. So we're free to be hid in Christ, right? To be kind of absorbed or covered Mm -hmm. with Christ, which is a a real biblical model for what our freedom looks like. Mm -hmm. And also free from guilt too. I think that's implied in the context as well. Free from despair.
0: Let's talk about that next verse. Yeah.
1: Behold him Behold him there, the risen lamb, although very, very, very early versions of the song say bleeding. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace.
0: I'll talk first about what you mentioned about these earlier versions that had bleeding. I think the change from bleeding to risen is excellent actually. I don't think we even have scriptural precedence for thinking that Christ is still bleeding, like eternally or something like that. That seems kind of excessive. Um, risen Lamb is more triumphant, uh, and frankly, in, in the UK, it would have been weird to use the word bleeding to refer to God. Yeah. So, I think this is a good change. Um, The risen lamb is once more called perfect, right? So, we saw earlier, we had a strong and perfect plea, and here we have my perfect, spotless righteousness. So, it is without blemish, this risen lamb. It's referring, of course, not just to Christ's sinlessness, which is true, um, but also his perfect obedience and hearkening back to a time when you would make a sacrifice with a specimen that had no blemish um, and we we find out uh, quite clearly here what sort of risen lamb we're dealing with and what sort of high priest we're dealing with. This is the great, unchangeable I am, yeah. right? referring to God's personal name that he gives Moses, Yahweh, the king of glory and of grace. These are scriptural titles and magnificent titles do the high king of heaven
1: definitely. I really like, as you did, the change from bleeding to risen. We have in Revelation the lamb who was slain, so we've got that perfect tense. We don't have the lamb who is being slain. So you could have potentially said the risen, blooded lamb, or... If you wanted to use the word blood, but you, well, bloody still implies, I guess he's not actively being bled. There's no real easy way to use blood to encapsulate the perfect sense in which it, in which the, the, this bloodied. Yeah. Bloodied was the best I could think of. I actually think risen is just much, much better. So like you, I concur about that. I like as well the notion of the unchangeable I am, as you do, for the reasons that you said. In addition to that, I would just add that it augments what is said earlier about Christ's pleading and his ever-living and pleading, so God is not going to change his mind. Like, we can imagine, in our human frailty, getting tired at some point of pleading forever. Like, we could see this as, okay, at some point, this has got to stop, like, because we think in finite terms— we can't
0: even endure passively enjoying his <laughs> yeah, pleading on our right. behalf. We try and take it on ourselves right. and feel guilt and shame. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. Let alone
1: actively do the pleading. Yeah. We don't even have to do anything but receive it, and we still try to ruin it. Um, <laughs> and yet, Christ is going to be up there pleading for us. And the song does a really good job of reminding us that the one pleading for us is one and the same as the great I am. The unchanging, right? The forever one, Um the one who always remembers, the one who is immutable. So it's a nice thing to add in this song. These, It's just, it's not only true about God, it's like, it's the right truth at the right time in the song as well, and really just cleverly done. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. So we have a reference to that purchase that you were talking about earlier there. And we also have a reference to the end of that freedom that occurred, or not freedom, the, the being free from guilt and sin we now see that the end of that is to be hid with Christ.
0: The high. end being the teleo, right? The, yes. the purpose. Yes, the purpose. Yeah, yeah. we should clarify that. As I mentioned, this, this purchase, this exchange has happened. My soul is purchased, right? So that's also in the perfect tense. It's accomplished. And the, the means of exchange was his blood for my soul. And the opening line of this final verse is, one with himself— I cannot die. So we saw before, he is the great, unchangeable I am who is risen from the grave and now lives forevermore. And because of his work, I am invited into communion, into being one with my Lord Christ Jesus. What a remarkable thing!
1: It's a shocking reversal going from being guilty and owing this debt that that required justice to not only being forgiven but now actually being brought in as one with the very entity that gave us this forgiveness it's scandalous and beautiful
0: mm-hmm. so we we see in the second half of this verse my life is hid with Christ on high So this is a scriptural reference here. Because of our union with Christ, we, the former man is now dead
1: and we have been raised to life in him. Tyler, how would you summarize this song's consistency and clarity and how does it compare with older versions of the hymn? We've mentioned one change already, but why don't you give us some closing thoughts?
0: Yeah, this hymn has scripture throughout the entire thing. It is laced with scripture, if I could say that. And the revisions that have been made only fortify what we had. So we had a good hymn, they fortify it, and it becomes something great in this song. There's a sound theology of atoning sacrifice and exchange and righteousness being imputed to us and giving us a union with the Lord Jesus. And as far as clarity goes, it's never ambiguous who or what we are talking about at any time. It is a very clear song, and it leads us on a trajectory from the declaration that we have a high priest to feelings of guilt that might still plague us mm-hmm. on this earth to a risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, doing exactly what it tells us, to look upward and see him there. Well, this last verse looks upward yeah. and points to him and declares things about him and about us because of it. I think it's a very clear, coherent, and biblical song.
1: Yeah, it's a layers, right? Because it it tells us it tells us these truths about God. It tells us how we should respond to them. And then it actually does it. I mean, that is uh it's a rare gift, for example, in my profession and yours too, for when a professor or, or an instructor is not only able to teach students what it is that they need to do in the abstract, but can kind of model that for them at the same time. Like that's typically a good professor does that. And this song is incredible in that way where it, it shows us these, it shows us what it is that we're supposed to do by actually doing it.
0: You can imagine someone being tempted to despair over the guilt of their sin and reminding themselves of this last verse. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. You can just see them um, enacting this.
1: Yeah, if a person is despairing, I put this song on repeat and sing it (laughs) until you believe it. I have one criticism. Go ahead.
0: And I've said this before, there's no
1: mention of the Holy Spirit in this song. We have two persons in the Trinity, we don't have the third.
0: Well, this song doesn't, preclude a third person of the Trinity, but we have a description of two persons. But a song can't do everything. But I thought it was important to note that.
1: One of the things that I like about this song is it really shows how to write a powerful song without a lot of, or really maybe any extraneous metaphor or vagueness. I mean, if you're singing a lot of songs in your church that are a little bit vapid or vague, and you're kind of like, well, you know, you've heard us criticize that, and you're wondering, like, well, how can we have these emotion, this, um, you know, how can we have emotional power in our music if we're not using metaphor all the time? It's like, well, this song shows you how to do that. Sing this song. I mean, sing songs like this one. There are others that we've gotten to that we've talked about on this podcast as well where they just don't mess around with making people guess as to what the meaning of the words are. This is just so clear. It's bold. It's true. Uh, It is one of the best adaptations of the gospel to song, apart from scripture itself, that I think I've ever heard. It really is a kind of gold standard for how to write a
0: hymn. Especially if you've become used to worship music that seems to glory in ambiguity, like holy fire, love, love, The storms. Yeah. And you've been trained to think of that as piety. And power. In worship. Yeah. This song stands in stark and brilliant Mm. contrast to that. I'd like to correct one thing I said a moment ago. I said there's no mention of the Holy Spirit. I should have said there's no explicit mention of the Holy Spirit. But our mystic union with Christ is in this song, and that is only possible by the power
1: of the Holy Spirit. So, Okay, so— what about the similarities to the two earlier versions? Now you mentioned that this song was written uh, in the. You may not have said this. This song was written in the mid nineteenth century um, by this woman, Charity Lee Bancroft. Uh, I think she later took on the name Smith. Maybe, maybe I'm. Anyway, this song was written by this woman in the um, in the mid nineteenth century, and as far as I could tell, apart from the word bleeding. There were no other differences, even like the apostrophed "hen" is, is in this new version.
0: Yes, I think I can think of two changes, okay. both minor. One change is I have a strong comma, a perfect plea. to I have a strong and perfect plea. And the other change, which is bigger, is the repetition of the final line of each verse in the song. Because oh, yeah. in the earlier versions, it was a t- traditional hymn where you sang each line once, but in this version from Sovereign Grace, it's, To look on him and pardon me, to look on him and pardon me.
1: And in the original version, it, you are right to say traditional. In the original version, it was, Before the throne of God above, which you might recognize as Jerusalem, mm-hmm. And did those feet in ancient time, right? That uh, classic English Tune. National, national anthem or whatever you might call it. I just realized
0: something. Hmm. Um, the end of each verse of this song in the Sovereign Grace version is very similar to The Colors of the Wind from Pocahontas. Can you paint with all the colors of the wind? Look on him and pardon me. Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> No tongue
1: can That movie had just come out. Uh, and, you know, so who knows? Maybe that, maybe Vicki Cook was, uh, you know, maybe, I don't know how old her kids were. And Vicki, if you ever listen to this, let us know if that movie was playing in your house. We're not accusing you of anything, of course. Like, we just, we have these melodies in our head. But I wonder, I wonder if that may have been in the background when she was working on this song. One thing I will say about the authorship and the similarities about this song, you said at the very beginning, this is the first song that we can say... Verifiably. Verifiably, written by a woman. And I'm not going to dispute that, but if she did write it, she definitely borrowed from some previous hymns. I'm not saying plagiarized, but she definitely took... Some themes. So this is a hymn by Wesley. Entered the holy place above, covered with meritorious scars, the tokens of his dying love, our great high priest in glory bears. He pleads his passion on the tree, he shows himself to God for me. Before the throne, my Savior stands, my friend and advocate appears. My name is graven on his hands, and him the Father always hears. While low at Jesus' cross I bow, he hears the blood of sprinkling now. Now, obviously not identical by any stretch, so this is not plagiarism at all or anything like that, but it does seem to be the case that she was inspired, at the very least, by some of these earlier hymns of Wesley.
0: Several decades earlier, yeah. too.
1: So I just want to um, I want to mention that. The other thing I find interesting about the new version, the Sovereign Grace version, and this is going to get a little bit into the weeds, It it's interesting that the song is virtually identical. And the reason I say that that's interesting is because Sovereign Grace is has a reputation for having very strong views about copyright. Bob Coughlin in particular, the director of Sovereign Grace Music, has very strong views on the copyrights that Sovereign Grace holds on their music. And you can even find in his blog, a little discussion he and I had about whether that is a good thing or not. And we had a disagreement over it, you know, perfectly amicable.
0: So he's kind of hawkish about intellectual property. Yeah. Or
1: so he, he really does not, they do not want anyone changing even the tiniest word in their music. Um, and, they're very, uh, like their their page about permissions is very very long. They want to be notified anytime you use their songs for for just about anything. Um, they wanna they kind of want to keep their hands on the afterlife of their music. And in my discussion with Bob Coughlin, we were talking about well, why? What's your justification for that? And his justification was, well, if you change somebody's song, your you're, you're forcing yourself into a co-writing relationship with them, a kind of against their will. It's a, it's a kind of violation to do that. In that discussion, I talked to Bob about, well, Sovereign Grace does this all the time just with older hymns. Like, they've redone a lot of older hymns and made big changes to those hymns. And his argument was, well, those are in the public domain, or those people are dead, and but that's like, just
0: a convenient I, accident of right, copyright law.
1: Right. And that's that was kind of my point to him is that doesn't like you're right. That doesn't change the principle that you've espoused. So I do find it interesting that that the position of Sovereign Grace or at least Bob's position and maybe Sovereign Grace's position broadly because he is the director of of music there is very convenient to protect them from any additions or subtractions to their songs while also giving them full permission and full cover to make these changes to other hymns. So I do just, uh, I just want to throw that out there. Um, Now, in this case, they really don't make many changes, just, just a couple. But I don't know that Sovereign Grace would, if they had written this song and someone wanted to make, like, say those changes back, uh, say they hadn't ever been made before, and someone wanted to change two words in this song, they would, they wouldn't. I don't think they would allow it. I think they would be unhappy with that. So I'm not saying they'd like sue somebody. I've never heard of them like being litigious. I'm not. I don't want to. Don't hear me make accusations or anything like that. But I just wanted to point out the the little bit of a double standard here. Tyler, Tyler, would you would you endorse this song? I would endorse this song. I think it's quite good. And by that you mean the American quite. I also would endorse it, full throated endorsement.
0: You would fully <laughs> endorse this song, Colin. I
1: fully, I fully endorse it. Uh, okay, bo- in both the American and English sense of fully. Tyler, what was your final score?
0: I give it five out of five. Emphatic key changes.
1: Mm, because- this is a song which is often subject to those key changes. Yes,
0: I'm compiling a list now of. Emphatic devices used for affect. So in this one, we have the key change, right? So in the last verse, we go up a, a step and the whole, Behold him there, like yes. gets this musical flair added to it. But, you know, we've had head wobbles, sentence fragments, <laughs>
1: repetition, syllable addition,
0: and now key changes.
1: I also gave this five out of five, five out of five changed lyrics. So in reference both to the minimal changes that this song underwent, but also kind of the irony of that in light of the way that Sovereign Grace tends to deal with that issue. So, a ringing endorsement of Before the Throne of God Above, and if you enjoyed this podcast, please follow us on Twitter, send us an email at feedback at com. send us a message on Twitter, retweet, Uh, let your friends know about this podcast. Do please consider supporting the podcast so that we don't have to take money away from my kids' college fund to do that. Send us Bitcoin. Oh, yeah. Whatever you send us, don't hesitate to do so. We appreciate hearing from listeners in, in really any way that you want to engage with us. We That's why we've done this podcast, is to contribute to what the church is doing. With that, take care, and we'll see you next time. We didn't start the fire. So. No, Ryan started the fire.